Well, good morning. Let me welcome you again. Uh, we are grateful that we can have this time to worship together and commune together and now spend a little time uh, together thinking through some thoughts from, from God's Word. And I want to begin today by sharing with you a conversation I had with uh, John and Stacy. Stacy, this is one of their most recent family pictures. For those of you who've been here for many years, you probably remember the Stacy family. If you're newer to this church family, you may not know. Uh, but John and, and Stacy and their children have uh, spent the last seven years, they're now in their eighth year of work with a, a church planting mission in Western Honduras called Mission Upreach. And uh, John and Stacy are members of this church. This is still uh, their, their church home. This is where they call home when they come back to the States for a period of time. But I was visiting them in Honduras, I don't know, a few years ago, and we had a conversation, and it, it's one of those conversations that I remember several years later, so that tells you a little bit about uh, its impact on me. Uh, we were having a conversation and talking, and, and, and John was asking me about the state of, of the political climate here and the cultural climate here in the United States. Uh, this was probably not too long after the Supreme Court ruling few years back in favor of same-sex marriage so John was just saying hey what you know what's that like uh, back home and so we talked about that and, and then we we talked a little just more broadly about morality in this country and and what that looks like uh, you know present day and then I, I made a comment about raising children I said you know just for us that's where we are right now and trying to raise children in a culture like ours where Things like kindness and, and decency are just, they seem to be largely lacking in a lot of ways. And that's when John said something that, that sort of stood out to me that I've, I've carried with me now for a few years. He said, yeah, you know, whenever, whenever we come home, we have this weird feeling of being home but not being home. <laughs> he said, whenever we go back to the United States, you know, things have, have changed which is understandable, but changed so quickly that, that we come home and, and we look around, we don't always recognize the place that we once called home. It has sort of a, a familiar yet foreign feel to it. So we, we just don't always feel at home, even in our homeland. And that, that conversation resonated with me. It struck a chord with me. And, and, and I, I reached back out to the Stacys this week because one, I wanted to be sure I remembered that conversation correctly, and, but then also I wanted to get any, any insight from John and Stacy that they might have on this. And they both individually said, yeah, you, you remember that conversation just, just right. And they said, yeah, there's just this disorienting feeling of, of coming back home. It's just, it's, it's familiar, yet it's, it's foreign. They, they pointed out some of the things that we've discussed already in this series. You know, they said, yeah, when we come home, we, we notice the, the American obsession with technology. Uh, we, we notice the influence of, of entertainment and media. We, we notice the excesses of, of consumerism. And, and they were the, be the first to say, hey, look, we can struggle with that just as much as anybody. Just because we're living as, as missionaries in another part of the world doesn't mean those things go away for us completely. Okay, so point well taken but living in a different cultural context I think does give them a, a perspective 
that you and I may not have. It gives them a view on some of the things that, that might be blind spots for us. Which, truth be told, that's, that's the reason I asked them the question in the first place. So these dear friends of mine who claim this to be home, they feel like strangers sometimes in their own homeland. We're from here, but we don't always feel like we're from here. That would be a good way of summarizing, I think, this, this point that we want to make this morning. That, that we should never feel perfectly at home in any earthly country. I think we all would agree to that. We all would kind of check that box mentally. We would say, yeah, we should always feel a little out of place here. We, sh- we should always feel just a little, you know, like disoriented, almost like, you know, the Stacys do whenever we, we think about living here in, in a culture like ours. Um, no matter where it is that God has planted us, we probably should never feel, you know, super comfortable in that particular context. That's the way it's supposed to be. In fact, as we'll see, it's, it's a very biblical idea. The scriptures call us to this understanding of ourselves, that we are strangers, that we are aliens. And we'll look at a few texts in the New Testament that kind of speak to that here in, in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to say, I, I'm afraid that, that sometimes, for, for some of us as, as Christians, it's so easy to lose sight of that truth. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that whether you're living in the United States or somewhere else. And I think one of the reasons it's easy to lose sight of that is because of the power that is latent in any particular culture. Culture has this this power. It is a great normalizing force, but it is also a great moralizing force. And you may think, okay, what, what does that even mean? What are we trying to say? Well, Think about it. There is is a normalizing power to our culture. And I know this to be true, and you know this to be true, because nobody really likes to stand out. Quite often, we don't want to stand out. We we will go to great lengths to kind of blend in and look like and sound like and talk like and dress like everyone around us. And so culture has this power to sort of normalize, to, to kind of make us all sort of look the same and sound the same, or at least to a certain degree have that normalizing sort of power over us. But it's, it's not just that culture has that power, there's also this moralizing force to culture. And I know that sounds a little academic, but here's what I mean. There's always, there's always this lull, culture seeks to kind of lull us into adopting a particular worldview, a particular way of thinking about things, a particular morality. I don't believe culture is ever neutral. I believe there are aspects of any particular culture that could be positive and shape us in positive ways, but I think there are aspects of any given culture that are also negative and that have the power to shape us negatively. And I believe that culture is always seeking to impose its morality upon us. And even further, say the spiritual forces that animate that are at work in our culture are really successful at doing this and so today in this in this part of our series this true and false series that we've been engaged in now for the past several weeks we're we're trying to take a look at these normalizing and moralizing lies that are part of our culture i would suggest to you that that christians are supposed to feel the way that john and stacy described that disorienting feeling 
should be the way that we should feel at all times in any particular culture. And furthermore, I would say anytime we don't feel that sense of disorientation, it might be that we've grown far too comfortable. It might be a signal that we're too much at home here. Of all the New Testament writers, Simon Peter is the one who addresses this the most. And so today I'd like to begin by looking at a couple of texts that he uses in, in the, the letter, the first letter that uh, bears his name in the New Testament, the, the book or the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the opening of this little letter that Peter writes to Christians 2,000 years ago. Listen to what he says here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then the address, who he's writing to, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout, basically, Asia Minor, okay, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. He hasn't even gotten into the content of his letter, really, but his preamble, his intro, his to and from, right, is rich with theological content. Simon Peter begins this address and he calls Christians strangers in the world and immediately our defenses go up right nobody wants to be called strange nobody nobody wants to be considered strange now we love the idea of being unique right unique is great <laughs> i like unique I like one of a kind, you know, those are words that really resonate, I, yeah, I'm, I'm unique, right? But strange, mm-mm, right? Strange has this vibe to it, you know, strange is weird, it's, it's bizarre, you're kind of, you know, just off on your own, you're, you're out of sorts, you're out of place, no one wants to be called strange. When you see a, a strange car driving slowly through your neighborhood, your suspicion rises because strange things stand out and strange things put us on guard. Nobody wants to be strange. But Simon Peter doesn't seem to share our reservation here because he puts the word right up front. And he says to you and to me, we are strangers in the world. Right there in black and white. This is our identity. This is like who we are. And you notice what makes us strange is the work of the triune God. Again, he points it out here. He says that we've been chosen according to this foreknowledge of God the Father. We've been sanctified by the work of the Spirit. And all this is for obedience to Jesus because we've been sprinkled by his blood. All of that, he says, makes us strange. You can't experience all of that and just be, you know, common. You can't experience all of that and just like go about your, your business like nothing has happened. You can't have a God encounter without being transformed and changed, he says. And all of this is just in his introduction. All of this makes us strangers in the world, he says. And so what, you know, what does that word really mean? Well, one Greek dictionary puts it this way. It says the word stranger refers to one who is a sojourner. Not simply one who is, is just passing through, Although we just sang that, right? And we appreciate Logan leading us in that song. <laughs> but 
doesn't, it doesn't mean exactly like one who's just sort of breezing through. Like that's, that's not what it means to be a stranger. That's not what the Bible calls us to be. You know, people who just, you know, we're sort of like holding our nose until we get out of this place and get to somewhere better. No, no, no. Like the, the word means that we're, we're a sojourner. We're, we're traveling through. We're passing through. But, but sort of in, in the role of like one who, who isn't from here, but one who is settled among these native people. Another scholar puts it this way, and I find this to be helpful. He says, think of someone who's more than a tourist, but not a full-fledged citizen. Somewhere kind of in that middle ground between tourist and full-fledged citizen, that's kind of what this word means. It has this really unique, (laughs) strange sort of meaning, and that's the word that Simon Peter uses to describe those Christians 2,000 years ago, but also you and me. We're strangers. And that kind of language would have certainly resonated with the earliest Christians. The idea of being alien, the idea of being strange somewhere, uh, they would have understood, especially the Jewish Christians to whom he would have been writing, they would have understood all of that in the great sweep of Israel's history. So all those years that Israel spent as strangers in Egypt would have been called to mind for them. Uh, All those episodes in Israel's history, in Judah's history, where you had Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity, even in the time of Jesus, even in the time of Paul, the Jews from, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, they would have considered themselves exiles and strangers in their own homeland due to Roman occupation. So this term, strangers, this this is just part of the biblical story of identity when it comes to the people of God. And this kind of reminder of basic Christian identity, it's, it's as important for us today as it was for those earliest Christians 2,000 years ago, because our spiritual ancestors came of age in a time when the primary claim, the undergirding truth of reality in their world was the lordship of Caesar. Everybody. Caesar is Lord. And that was just the air that you breathed in that particular culture. But these Christians dared to stake their lives, their souls, upon a counterclaim that Caesar isn't Lord, but instead that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so rather than, you know, blindly just accepting that truth, these Christians stood against, said, no, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And if that meant that they were persecuted for what they believed, well, so be it. Because they would let nothing dissuade them from their conviction that their identity was rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And that undoubtedly made them strange. And there's a word here for us. Because, because we struggle with wanting to fit in, don't we? Again, we, we don't really want to be strange. Culture is always kind of whispering to us culture has that power to normalize so so she's whispering you know you don't you don't want to you don't want to stand out do you you want to be like everybody else so so we struggle with this right we struggle with this because we want to hold on to our faith we don't want people to think we're extremists we want to believe in jesus but we don't want to come across as overbearing because of this myth that faith has no place in the public square so all this is in play for us no secret that we don't like to stand out 
I've told some of you about the, my first day of kindergarten. It was a long time ago now. My first day of kindergarten was a traumatic experience for me because my parents made me wear my Sunday suit to kindergarten. I had this little suit and, and you, know, pa- you know, matching pants, little suit with a vest that had like three buttons. So I get up for my first day of school. My mother was an educator, by the way. So you know, I'm just following mom's, you know, kind of rules here. I figure she's been to school a lot. She knows what it's like. So I have to put on my whole Sunday suit. And I thought, this is kind of weird. I mean, we're not going to church, right? But I thought, hey, maybe this is the way everybody dresses at school, you know? So I put on my, you know, my collared shirt, my little clip-on tie, my vest that matches the suit, and my Buster Brown shoes that I'd worn the day before to church. We get out of the car, and I had that disorienting feeling. I start looking around, and I don't see anybody else dressed like me. I don't see anybody else wearing a suit, much less a vest and a clip-on tie, right? I see kids walking into school wearing shorts, t-shirts. I think, well, you know, maybe I'm in a special class, right? <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe I'm in the class. I'm trying to be hopeful, you know? I, trusting my mom while I'm holding her hand, walking out. We open up the door and I step in. And no, no, this is not a special class. This is an ordinary, regular class with kids wearing blue jeans and tennis shoes, except for one, right? I look like a Bible salesman walking right into <laughs> kindergarten class. And on that day, I was a stranger, <laughs> and I was an outsider in my little, you know, six-year-old mind, in, in the worst possible way, all right? And with, with, with that in mind, following Jesus makes us strange, can we say it, in the best possible way, right? Because Simon Peter goes on to say that those who follow Jesus, those who are strangers and exiles and aliens, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called out of darkness, and we now declare the glory of the one who's called us into his glorious light. And I don't know about you folks, but I think the world needs a lot of people who are strange like that, don't you? And that's our identity. Following Jesus makes us strange in like the best possible way. So this is a word for us to to retain our identity based on who God says we are, rather than letting culture kind of normalize and and dictate who we are. And let me just say, if if we're persecuted also for for what we believe, we won't be the first. We won't be the last, probably. The form of persecution we might face, I don't think it really measures up to the forms of persecution that some of our forebears have endured. So be it. This is what it means to live as as exiles and strangers and aliens. Simon Peter uses this same word elsewhere in this little letter. In chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So Simon Peter returns to this idea of aliens and strangers to this this end, 
to call us to abstain from sinful desires. He says those desires actually wage war against our soul. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that, that those sinful desires are kind of like waging this internal war inside of you? That's, that's according to Simon Peter, that's how it works. That's how those sinful desires work. And his exhortation here is to abstain, to, to keep those, those sinful desires at bay. There's kind of a distancing to this word. But the, the word itself has this connotation of all, almost like a running back and a, you know, stiff arming the defender. You know, like we're keeping those things at bay. We're pushing back. We're not letting those desires get too close. That's what it means to abstain. Our culture doesn't preach too much about the importance of abstinence, does it? Instead, our culture kind of lives by this mantra of if it, if it feels good, do it, right? Whatever desire is in your heart, go and pursue that. And we've, we've talked about that uh, at length. So again, though, remember, remember that culture is always moralizing. There's always a morality that culture is trying to push upon us. And, and I think you can see that pretty clearly right here because our culture preaches that any desire that you have is worth pursuing. Don't evaluate it and consider whether it's good or not, but that's the good life is to pursue that desire and and culture often contributes to the formation of those desires as well so back to my conversation this week with john and stacy stacy said you know sometimes i i get a little upset when i see american culture invading the culture here so you know what do you mean she she explained that many of the aspects we associate with traditional morality uh, are maintained there in, in honduran culture at least in western honduras uh, she even used the word God-fearing to describe that prevailing attitude there. But she said that she sees how technology is, is bringing a new kind of culture, an Americanized culture to Honduras. She says the desire to be like Americans or to go to America drives how people dress, the things they buy, what they watch and listen to, things like needing to learn English or own an iPhone or wear certain brands, listen to certain kinds of music, watch all the movies, etc. She says all that is in play, but more than that, Stacy says that, that she sees Hondurans absorbing American attitudes about sexuality and about morality in ways that, that threaten to destroy the moral code that this culture has lived with for so, so long not just exporting a particular form of culture we're also exporting a, a cultural morality because that culture is never neutral it both normalizes and it moralizes and therein lies the threat so how do we abstain well for centuries for thousands of years christians have found strength in those ancient practices of, of prayer and meditation and bible study and fellowship a steady diet of those things will help keep those sinful desires at bay. That's just biblical teaching. And conversely, our appetite for sin seems to grow when we starve our souls of these kinds of things. So Simon Peter says, in this land of, of rampant sin, that aliens and strangers are ones who abstain from sinful desires. But he has so much more to say than just telling us, like, what not to do. This lesson is far richer than that. Simon Peter gives us this, this compelling vision of the kind of strangers we should be. According to Simon Peter, to be strangers and aliens is, 
is to live well. He says to live good lives. There's this Christian quality of life that is strange, but, but distinctive. He says we're to live in such a way that our lives stand out, that, that we are a contrast people, that we are a, a kingdom of God counterculture at work in any culture that we find ourselves in. So the, so the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't seek to normalize us in the way that, that culture does and make us look like everybody else, but no, it calls us to stand, even stand against, if the situation warrants it, to stand up, to stand much like Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, here says the Lord, let my people go, to stand much like David stood before Goliath, to stand much like Elijah stood on Mount Carmel, the only prophet of God staring down 450 prophets of Baal. To stand as Jesus stood when they whipped him, they beat him. According to Matthew's gospel, they spit in his face. And yet he stood. And as aliens and strangers we stand as a contrast people. And there's this potential outcome Simon Peter would remind us of. He says, even though they would accuse us of wrongdoing, he says our good deeds bail us out. Our good deeds are irrefutable proof that we're not up to no good. <laughs> that we're actually trying to be salt and light in the way that Jesus calls us to. And more than just getting us off the hook, he says that, that those good deeds, when done in that sort of spirit, they have the power to cause others to glorify God, he says, the day that he visits. So those are the stakes, right? As aliens and as strangers, we live as that counterculture of the kingdom of God in any culture that we find ourselves in. That's the gospel truth. But we won't always feel like strangers. This is the last text that we'll look at. One final place in the New Testament where you find this word used is in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11. It's actually right in the middle. This great teaching on what the nature of faith is. But you find this in verses 13 through 16. We'll read this and we'll wrap up. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted... Listen to this part. They admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The Hebrew writer tells us that the people of God have always felt a little out of sorts always felt a little bit like strangers and that's actually the definition of faith trusting in god even if it means we look weird and we look different and we look strange we're sustained here by the promise of god he promises never to be ashamed of us when we stand he promises a better country a heavenly country he promises that he has prepared a city a strange one, if you want to call it that, a unique one, a heavenly one. It's that new Jerusalem 
you read about comes down out of the heavens at the end of Revelation. That's how the biblical story ends. And that image gives us hope. Because when we make it to that new Jerusalem, we'll no longer be strangers. We'll no longer be aliens. Instead, we'll be home. When I asked the Stacys about this, Stacy and John each referenced one passage of scripture. I could tell this was one that important for them as a family i'll close by sharing it with you psalm 90 verse 1 they said was key and it shaped their their thinking on this it simply says you O lord have been our dwelling place or if you want to call it you O lord have been our home throughout all generations and speaking of this text john says if god is our home then it all feels out of place it always feels like we don't belong here but he says that's the way it should be and in reflecting on Psalm 90, Stacy writes, I love that image. And it is what I try to use to teach my kids about what home really is. Wherever our family is, if God is with us and we are following him, we're home. Is the Lord your dwelling place? Is he your home? If not, then I hope that you would want to do something about that. Let's close with a word of prayer bow father in heaven you're good and your love endures forever and for that god we are so grateful i pray today lord that you would remind us of who we are through the power of your word you call us to be aliens and strangers exiles in this place with the promise of someday being home with you may this promise sustain us this day and every day we pray through christ amen Let's stand together and let's sing our song.